when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. When the Lord said, then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and I have said, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you, that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. 
They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sins against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Thanks, Sal. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Lovely to have you along. Uh, My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. If you are new or visiting, it's really great to have you along. Um, It is time for the kids, sorry, not kids, my apologies, the youth to go out for youth church. You can see Beck up the back with Lydia. Beautiful. Um, The rest of us, we are going to hang out in this uh, this section of of Exodus, um, and I'm going to pray as we start. Uh, So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask every week, and we ask it no less today, that you would help us to hear your word, that you'd help us to understand what it is that you caused to be written, that you'd help us to apply it to ourselves carefully, prayerfully, and seriously, both for our good and for your glory, we pray it. Amen. All right, any, um, any boating or sailing enthusiasts in the congregation this morning? Anyone sail the high seas, anything of that nature? You know, I'm not, like, bo- yachting, I'll even, I'll even accept a cruise liner at this point. Oh, there, thank you. Wow, finally, thanks. Look, I'm a huge fan of boating and fishing, but I am absolutely terrified of open water waves and due in no small part to pictures like these. Have you seen these sort of things? In fact, they don't do it justice when you see a still image. They do it far greater justice when you see the up and the down, the huge ocean liners in massive swells, the highest of highs followed by the lowest of lows, terrifying and nauseating at the same time. I start like this because reading Exodus has been a similar experience. High highs... We've got like Yahweh revealing himself to Moses, miraculously rescuing Israel from Egypt, immediately followed by the lowest of lows that you can imagine. You know, it was only about three weeks ago, I think, that Mike uh, preached from 
18 to 20 odd. Just a matter of days after God saved Israel by parting the Red Sea, by destroying the, the Egyptian army. It was just three days after that miraculous deliverance of God's grace and power manifest before them. Three days later, but Israel are grumbling, complaining, even accusing Yahweh of evil. High, high to low, low. And it's sickening to read about, isn't it? Well, I hope you've had a light breakfast or you've got a motion sickness tablet in your bag because after the dizzying heights of God's grace and goodness expressed to Israel through him giving them the law for flourishing, through the tabernacle for his dwelling, we've looked at this over the last three weeks, we're about to take another nauseating nosedive in our section of Exodus today. Now, many of you will be familiar with the, the golden calf story. But I want you to take a fresh look at this. I want you to look a little bit deeper, a little bit closer, because the more closely we look, the more jaw-dropping and stomach-churning it becomes, both in terms of the horror of humanity, of which we're included, and the mind-blowing graciousness of God to which we're invited. Now, there's plenty of questions. Look, I've done you all a disservice this morning. I had this grand intention to do from sort of 32 to halfway through chapter 34. I've ended up really dealing with about seven verses of 32. <laughs> I've tried to decide I'm not going to try to cram it all into this week. I've sort of split it into two sermons. Doesn't mean it's going to be short today though, so I don't get you know, that. But really, I want to deal in, I don't want to deal with the first six verses because there's some really big, obvious questions we need to ask and answer from this section. And the first obvious question, no doubt you're wondering, if you know anything about the golden calf incident, is how the heck can Israel be so stupid? Is that not the question you're asking? Is that not the question you're wondering as you hear that read? How in the world do they go from there to there in such a quick fashion? Well, I listened to a, uh, some time ago to a, a, a Bible teacher, a really good Bible teacher from the UK. His name's William Taylor of St. Helens Bishopsgate in London. And I, I like this and I've ripped this off him completely. He talks about the idolatry three-step. It's not a dance move to learn, folks. In fact, we already know this quite intuitively. And we're going to look at this section under these headings of the idolatry three-step. And it goes like this. First step, rejection. Second step, replacement. Third step, revolution, he calls it. I'm calling it reformation. You'll see why. The idolatry three-step is how Israel got there so quickly. And it's something that we need to take really, really careful stock of as well as we look and think about this for ourselves. But let's have a look at this. Step one, rejection. It's the first step in the idolatry three-step. This, this is rejection in the sense of Israel rejecting Yahweh and his prop, uh, promises, and it happens incredibly quickly. Have a look there at verse, uh, chapter 32, verse 1. It starts with, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. See how quickly, wow, that escalated quickly. And I don't want us to be over harsh on Israel. It's not like they did this the moment that Moses started going up the mountain. Now we know from, in fact, if you look back to chapter 24, 18, we know that Moses was some time up the mountain with, to meeting with Yahweh. In fact, 40 days and 40 nights, he says. And humanly speaking, that's a long time to wait. In fact, I like Mike's illustration from the kids' talk about, you know, it's a bit like when mum says she's going into the shop, just popping in to get two things, and she makes it seem so quick and so simple that you choose to wait in the car. No, it's fine, mum, I'll just wait. And 45 minutes later, <laughs> you're still waiting, flushed, red-faced, hot and bothered. 
unable to imagine or comprehend what in the heck is taking so long. Everyone identifies with that, don't they? Surely as a kid you remember it. And what did you do next? In fact, what did you need to do in that circumstance? The answer is you needed to keep waiting. Why? Because mum was coming back. She's your mum. What I mean by this is no one in the car waiting for mum to return ever had this conversation with a sibling as a kid. No one ever looked at their brother or sister and went, well, mum's obviously dead. Looks like we better go find someone else to look after us from this point forward. And out the, out the car we go. First woman pushing a trolley. Hey, can we come and bunk with you from now on? No one did that. But it's kind of like what Israel do now. Moses is a little longer in, in returning from their perspective too long. Funny because no time frame was ever given. But clearly a number of them had decided this has been too long. So they decided to go after Moses. And at a best, most generous reading, we should assume they think that Moses is dead. We're being, I'm being generous to them in this point. But in, in thinking that, in going there and in acting upon that, what they're actually doing more significantly, more horrendously, is they're giving up on Yahweh. They're giving up on the promises he's just made. In effect, they're assuming that Yahweh is either unable or unwilling to keep the covenant promises he's just made. They've just agreed to a covenant. We will do everything the Lord says. Oh, Moses is taking his time. Let's make other gods. At the very first sign of difficulty, at the very first sign of discomfort, they've rejected Yahweh as a, a non-starter. It's unbelievable. You know, the most common illustration in the Bible to describe Israel's constant sinful rejection and rebellion against God's rule, do you know what it is? It's most commonly described as adultery. It's a graphic and fitting description. Because what we've got here is just like a wedding ceremony. Two parties have just agreed to covenant terms. They've just agreed to a committed relationship. In fact, imagine, imagine it this way. Imagine you went to a wedding, the vows have been made, the rings have been exchanged, and then while the husband is signing the paperwork, the bride gets impatient and starts chatting up one of the guests and asks him to marry her instead. Can you imagine that? It's essentially what's going on here. At the first sign of inconvenience, Moses and Yahweh taking too long, Israel given up on the covenant. They've assessed that Yahweh in this moment isn't reliable. And so they've rejected him and looked for another husband. Or in this case, an alternative source of comfort for now and hope for the future. Make us gods who will go before us. Now, it's very easy to look at this and read it. It's very, I mean, it's, it's laughable. It is. But before we just shake our heads, giggle and move on, is this not the trap that we all fall into also? What, what I mean by that, friends, is it not the trap that we fall into at hard times in life, in the trials, in the difficulties, in the sufferings, in the temptations, even in the repeated patterns of sin, those issues that I can't seem to shake and much less perhaps don't want to shake, want to shake, don't want to shake, you know what I mean? Are you not prone to forget God in that moment? Or forget the promises that he's made and fulfilled in Jesus. And in that moment, either give up on God or look elsewhere for comfort in the now and hope for the future. Can you not recognize that problem? Of that attitude that effectively says, I can't trust God with this. Or he's not listening, so I'll look for a solution or a supplement elsewhere. 
You see, you're not alone in it, friends. It's the natural inclinations of our fallenness. I say we do this in effect because I don't think any of us are as bold to do this. Few of us are as bold to do this out loud. We don't say this out loud, but we live like God is not trustworthy. That is not enough. That in that moment of hardship and struggle, there must be something else we need to add to the mix in order to feel secure for the future. Israel did it. We do it. It's the first step in the idolatry, three step, and it comes quite natural. Rejection of God by forgetting or ignoring his promises through his word. Which leads to the inevitable two step. Replacement. In fact, we see this very quickly in the text. We see it in the same verse. Yahweh just did, sorry, Israel didn't just reject Yahweh in verse 1 to sort of leave this vacuum, vacuous hole in their lives. No, they rejected God and immediately sought to fill or replace that space that Yahweh filled because they were looking for present security, future hope. In fact, have a look at it again, 32 verse 1. What do they say to Aaron? Come, make us gods who will go before us. Why do they say this? Because to their minds, their present security and their future hope are now in jeopardy. This Moses fellow, we don't know what's happened to him. Make us gods to go before us. Now, there is so much wrong with this next bit, so much that is grossly inappropriate in terms of how they attempt to replace Yahweh. It's difficult to know what to mention and what to skip over. Let's just have a look and see how we go there. Have a look there at chapter 32, verses 2 to 4. Notice first what Aaron does. He, Aaron, who just moments ago has been nominated by Yahweh to be a priest, a significant figure to mediate, to serve on behalf of the people before God in the tabernacle. Notice he's completely complicit in their lunatic request. In fact, notice what he does. Verse 2, Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Verse 3, the people did it. Verse 4, Aaron took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. I.e., he worked on it intently. That'll be significant in a minute. And then they said, the Israelites, these are your gods who brought us up out of Egypt. Do you notice that in similar fashion to the offering that Yahweh called for in the building of the tabernacle, Aaron, in some kind of copycat move, calls for an offering of pure gold now, not to create a space to meet with the real God at Yahweh's request. No, this time to create a whole new God. And he fashions a lifeless, mute lump of metal and he calls it God. Second thing not to miss, why a golden calf? Aaron will try to make out that it just happened this way by some kind of miracle. Did you hear 32? Verse 24, as Aaron's trying to vindicate and justify his poor showing to Moses, he describes a highly stylized version of events, controlling the narrative like a modern-day professional politician. Verse 24, oh, they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire. Now I'd come this calf. Can I say, that is the greatest load of bull ever uttered. You had to see that one coming, didn't you? That is a complete 
fabrication. In fact, Aaron is using the same skill and care to craft his story as he did in crafting the calf idol itself. Because we've already heard that he deliberate, the deliberate nature of the work that Aaron did, deliberately shaping the idol into a form of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And why is he trying to distance himself from this now? It's because of what it represented. It wasn't by accident that he made a bull. Rather, in the cultural context that they're living in, the bull was a symbol of strength and fertility. In fact, that's not hard to imagine or appreciate in a farming culture. You can appreciate that, can't you? Your success is a people depending on the strength of your cattle, the strength to plough the fields, to grow your produce, the ability to grow more cows. If you need a less, I can talk to you about that later, but the ability to grow more cows for milk, for meat. The bull was an enormous, significant representation in terms of present prosperity, future hope. In fact, so much so that where they'd just come from, Egypt, they had a god, a god of strength and fertility, Apis, who manifested as a bull. Fancy that. And Canaan, where they're headed, also worshipped a strength and fertility god, Baal, who was said to transform himself in, you'll never guess, a bull. It's not by accident that Aaron fashions a calf. It's a deliberate reflection of the cultures around them. They are mirroring and matching both the place they've come from and the place they're going to in terms of where they'll anchor their present security and their future hope from this point forward because Yahweh's not going to cut it. And not just that, even more ludicrous than pinning your future hopes on a lump of moulded metal, if that's not stupid enough. Notice also they do a bit of revisionist history here in verse 4. Notice how they refer to the golden calf, the gods who brought them out of Egypt? Wait, what? I mean, so blatant and inexcusable is their rejection of Yahweh, step one, that in their rejection, the replacement of him, rather, in step two, they're now acting as if they can erase or rewrite the past events, even if that was only recent past events. Recasting a newly made idol as the Deliver that, what? It's amazing, nauseating stuff, isn't it? And again, it would be easy just to hammer the Israelites on this point, but do you not notice the similar problem for our culture for us today? That idea of replacing, or at the very least supplementing, trust of God with another lesser little g God. I use an adverted commas looking to another little G God in terms of security for now and hope for the future. That's what prompted Israel to go this way. So it's worth asking, isn't it? What, what are the modern day cultural equivalents to a carved bull for our society, for us today? What are they? Well, look around. What is the pagan world around you? Where do they look to for their security now and their, and their future hope? I mean, there are a stack of things I could mention, and I'm, this is where you should be thanking me because I cut out a couple of pages here. I'm going to skip over them because there's heaps that you could mention. You could mention the self-help stuff. You could mention the sex and identity. You could mention the achievement. But I, I, they're not likely the ones you'll feel most tempted to trust in as a replacement for or supplement to God if you're a Christian in our context. Let me instead sharpen up a couple that may sting a little harder because they may be closer to the nerve than most of us would actually want to admit. 
Here's the first example. Anyone recognise this modern-day idol of a little G-God? Have a look at this picture. Anyone recognise that monument? That there is the God of education, folks. And here is a monument to this little G-God. Firstly, do you recognise this as the God of modern paganism, as one of the gods of modern paganism? Education, the supposed answer to all humanity's ills now and the answer to all hope for future generations. Education's the key, folks. We've got to educate people. The problem here is an education problem. We need to... Is that not how education is spoken of? And secondly, do you recognise personally now how easily and subtly you can make this little G, God, a priority, either for yourself or if you're a parent, for your children? Now, it gets tricky here, folks, because there's nothing wrong with education in and of itself. It's a good thing. Where's the line? Where's the crossover line? It's when the good thing becomes a priority thing over and above the pursuit of God. It's when it becomes the anchor for present satisfaction, future prosperity. When the pursuit of education becomes the altar on which you will sacrifice other things, including obedience to God himself, that's when you've got an idolatry problem with the little G God of education. In fact, let me make it a little clearer again. If you're a parent here and you spend more time worried about your kids' school grades or spend more time praying about the job they'll get in the future, then you do praying for them and leading them through your interactions as a family to know and love and serve Jesus above all else. You've got an idolatry problem with the God of education. Or if you're a student presently, and I'm not, I don't care if you're at TAFE or at school or at uni or professional development through work, whatever it is, if you've ever said to yourself or someone else, I oh, know I can't make Bible study or church or I don't have time to read my Bible and pray because my study load is just too great. If you've ever said that out loud or even thought it in your head, you're either trying to justify some sort of laziness because let's be honest, we all make time for the things that are of most importance, period. Or you're reflecting some sort of ignorance to the value of who God is or you've got an idolatry issue with the God of education. Like the pagan world around you, you are sacrificing everything on that altar. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to hear this because, as I, let me stress again, there's nothing wrong with studying for a degree. I've got a couple. Who would have thought? <laughs> but when that good thing, education, becomes a God thing, that is when the priority focus shifts and the source of hope for the future is based on anything other than the God who is. It's making a golden calf like Israel. It's buying into pagan worship. It's a problem. It's a problem we need to repent of and change quickly and deliberately. First little G, God, education. What's the second biggest issue I think that we will all feel? It's the little G, God of, of the dollar. In fact, we cast this idol not as a bull so much so as a pig or a piggy bank. And to our minds, the bigger, the better. Actually, ironically, and I think fittingly, anyone here ever visited Wall Street in America? You know, the finance sort of capital, uh, heart of the West? Anyone ever been on Wall Street? Do you know what, what statue is on Wall Street? The Wall Street bull. I mean, is that not just fantastic in its appallingness? 
This statue was placed there, installed in 1989. It was built by a uh, Sicilian-born American artist at his own expense. took him two years to build it, cost him something like, I think, $350,000. And he put it there as a gift. He didn't get permits. He just dumped it there one day. I think it was on the 15th of December. Look at this. Why am I remembering that? Anyways, he, he built it and placed it there as a, a monument to America's power after they bounced back from the 1987 stock crash. I mean, honestly, is that not straight out of the playbook of Aaron in Exodus? But it's no different with us in Australia now, is it? I imagine it's no different for you personally. It's no different for me. I mean, how much time and energy do we spend, do we invest in building personal wealth for the sake of our present comfort and future security? How much time and energy do you spend worrying if you've got Enough in air quotes. When you don't even know what enough is, I don't. In reality, I've never really gone without in any real sense of the word. In fact, personal example, how many of you felt just a little safer, maybe a little bit more secure after doing your tax recently and getting a bit of a return that you didn't expect? Or conversely, you felt a little bit more vulnerable and unsure because you didn't get the return you expected? I'm embarrassed to admit it. But it's true, I felt relieved. Yeah, right. We weren't dancing around a calf, but I mean, there's a little bit of a skip in the step, if you know what I mean. It's hardly an earth-shatteringly large sum of money, but it exposed to me again how much my confidence for the future is still tied to the size of my bank account, large or small as that may be. Are you any different? And again, it's hard, folks, because it's like education. It's not that money in and of itself is a bad thing. It is necessary. You can't live or engage in the modern world without it. But how much you say you need or what you're willing to sacrifice in pursuit of it, this will be the indicator of whether it's become an idol for you. Is that a question you've asked yourself? Is it a question you've ever considered? Is it a question you're willing to consider prayerfully with an audience of one before God alone? God is... Is money an idol to me? Would you reveal where money has become my source of present comfort and future security? Would you help me to repent of that, genuinely repent of that, and know what that looks like, and trust you alone as the God who is? Are you prepared to have that, that conversation with God? Are you prepared to share some of those struggles with your Christian brothers and sisters? I don't believe there's just one of us here. In fact, it leads me into the third step of the idolatry three-step process. So you've got number one, reject, number two, replace, number three, reform. And I want to say this is the one I think that Christians, if you're here and a Christian, this is the one to be wary of. Because my assumption is that if you've been a Christian for a while, or at the very least if you've grown up in a Christian family and you've sort of adopted this or just it's been permeated to you in some way, a Christian worldview... If that's you, it's unlikely that you'll be as bold as Israel in rejecting and replacing God overtly. You'll unlikely be as bold or as quick in rejecting and replacing Yahweh, but it's far more likely you'll fall into the temptation to revolutionize or reform your beliefs to cover your rejection and replacement that has subtly been taking place. That's a huge mouthful. Let me explain what I mean. Because it's exactly what Aaron does in the text. Did you notice it in verse 5? So he goes along with the popular demand of the people. He tacitly, by extension, rejects Yahweh and replaces him with a pagan idol 
But as if to soften or redeem the blatant idolatry he's committing, he tries to claim it as an act of worship to Yahweh. Did you see that? He tries to reform the practice to make it appear above God, both before God and before the people. Look at it there in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord? That's Yahweh's name? Really? What? Do you see what he's attempting to do here, friends? It's as if he can cloak the rejection and the replacement of Yahweh with a golden image in blatant opposition and disobedience to God's first two commands, by the way. He's acted as if he can cloak this and dedicate this somehow in the honour of Yahweh. The very God he's just rejected replaced. He's now reforming the worship practice. The old idolatry three-step. One, two, three. Complete. And just in case you don't think reformation is what he's going for here, then keep reading to verse 6. Because what does it say next? The next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Presumably in the context, that's in front of the altar given to the golden calf that he's just made. It's the next verse. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to engage in revelry. Sounds terrific. That last part is commonly believed to be euphemistic way of saying they gorged themselves stupid, got drunk and had a sex party. Another tip of the hat to pagan worship practices in this time. This is how you get the attention of the fertility God so that your crops produce well and grow, so that your herds increase. You throw an orgy. In fact, chapter 32, verse 25, Moses records his reaction to the people running around wild, out of control, being anything but the holy nation God has just called them to be. No, no, they're the laughing stock of the nations around them. Friends, what's happening here in the third step or the third move of the idolatry three-step, the Reformation stage? What's what we would call today, it's what we'd call syncretism at its finest, at its worst. That idea, if you've never heard of the word syncretism before, it basically means an attempt to reconcile or unify contrary beliefs and practices. Try to stick together two things that cannot, by definition, belong together. Aaron thinks he can do this. Aaron thinks he can lead Israel in blatant disobedience of God's law by encouraging them to adopt pagan worship practices and then dedicate it to Yahweh's honour. That's syncretistic nonsense. It's a gross dishonouring of God no matter how you try to dress it up. Now I hope you know where I'm going with this because is this not our problem too, folks? Is this not the heartbeat of our culture to want to synchronize to pretend we can ah nay ought blend all ideas about god all ideas about appropriate worship even when these ideas are mutually exclusive and irreconcilable is it not the heartbeat of our culture of our pagan world around us to say no 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 we all need to bring it together in fact have you ever seen the bumper sticker bumper sticker coexist have you seen that one i'm sure i've shown it to you before as if these are all compatible. 
let me make a little side point there. It's not to say that we can't coexist side by side, but to think that we can collapse into each other is ridiculous, God-dishonouring garbage. And it's the temptation, not just of the Christian church at large, it is the temptation of Christians like us. Not just to allow pagan priorities and practices sort of infiltrate our own hearts and minds personally, but our attempt to baptise pagan practices and priorities, baptise them as genuine expressions of worship in the name of God, even as we stand in direct opposition to him and disobedience to him. You, you want a classic example? I've got time for probably... I could, I've got a thousand, but I'll give you one. Classic example. Take 1 John 4.8, for example. I think it's the, perhaps the most obvious, easy example to deal with. 1 John 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Magnificent verse. Now you use the old idolatry three-step to, to, to weaponize this. Well, you take that very true verse, you divorce it from its context... You hold it in isolation away from everything else that God has said in his word. You define love by your own standard and then you use it to justify all kinds of God-denying, God-dishonouring sinful stupidity in God's name. From promiscuous sex, ah, sex is an expression of love. God is love, therefore God must be for all expressions of sex. So so in the Bible. Or rejection of sins, sorry, of Sin, a, a notion, a rejection of the notion of sin and God's anger or wrath against it. See, God is love. Love means accepting people as there are. Therefore, God, God can't be angry, and He certainly won't judge people for ignoring Him, especially if they're living authentically. Do you see how this works? I could go on and on, on and on. There's other movements. I remember looking at one uh, some time ago, the Insider Movement. You might have heard of the C Scale. It's the idea that you can, it was used in terms of missionaries going into uh, Islamic countries particularly, encouraging people to continue to be a Muslim, continue to do everything, look, sound, do everything the same, but when you go to mosque, pray to Yahweh, that's, that's enough. Or it's the kind of thing that you see in Christian churches, in particular in the West, where monuments and relics and crucifixes and statues have become the object of worship. I went to uh, Paris many years ago to Sacre Coeur up on the mountain there. Couldn't believe it when we were walking through. It was a fascinating building to look at. A big statue of St. Peter in the middle of the church, right above the, uh, this big stained glass window. And I couldn't work out why Peter had a club foot. Well, Peter didn't have a club foot. Peter's toes had been rubbed off from people rubbing his toes and wishing. It's a marble statue. He hadn't any toes left. You know how many rubs are going to be made for that to happen? <laughs> Doesn't happen quick is my point. This kind of idolatry, it is nothing short of idolatry, friends. When we disobey God, when we reject his word, which is for our good and flourishing and do something opposite in his honour. It's nuts. And this is the kind of statements that are made by Christian individuals, by Christian churches, with increasing regularity and popularity to the shame of those who do and to the dishonour of God. Just like the Israelites dancing around a golden calf, calling it a festival to Yahweh. Are you feeling nauseated yet? 
Are you feeling the gut heave of coming off the dizzying heights of Exodus 20 to 31 into the stomach-churning horror-filled depths of Exodus 32, like a ship tossed on the waves? What's the solution here, friends? Actually, first, what's the question we're left here with here? Because where is the only anchor for the present security or future prosperity for us as Christians living 2,000, well, sorry, three and a half, 4,000 years beyond this? In fact, what's the other question here is not just how can God continue with Israel, how can God continue with us? We're all guilty of the idolatry three-step, rejection, replacing, reforming beliefs to suit ourselves in defiance of him. Well, some of you at least will be pleased to know that I'm not going to go into depth on this now. I'm not going to try to answer it now. This is where I went, ah, there's so much more to do here, but I'll pick it up there next week. (laughs) So make sure you come back. But I do want to give you the short answer that we will dig into next week, and it is that the solution is in Jesus. And specifically, I want to say, in the cross of Christ. Because as we read in, uh, in the rest of Exodus 32, there is a great problem here of God's promise to Israel, promises that Moses says, God, you can't go back on those, and yet his need to be just in dealing with the people's sin. How can he do that? How can he be both merciful and just? It's only by looking at the cross, by seeing that in Jesus' death, God demonstrates, God demonstrates both his right anger for sin and his willingness to be merciful for sinners. It's the only way that we can have a guaranteed assurance of a future hope in the goodness of a merciful and just God. It's like that image again, like waves tossed on the like waves of the open sea. The low low is followed by the high high, isn't it? And so it is with God. Grace, sin, more grace. It's what we're going to do next week when we come along. If you've, if you've got burning questions now, I don't want you to leave with them unanswered. Fill out that Care and Connect card. Write down a question by all means or come and speak to me afterwards. Um, but right now, we are going to sing a song that finished to finish, which really does deliberately give us a bit of an insight into next week as well. At the cross, please pay attention to the words. It tells us of the solution that God has made in which he can be just and merciful. It's at the cross of Christ. Stand and we'll sing it together.